Amen. Man, praise the Lord. Man, welcome in. If you are, uh, this is your thousandth and first time or your first time, man, welcome to Lindsay Lane North. We're so glad to have you worshiping with us, whether you are here in person in the flesh or you are online. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Uh, man, we pray that the Lord has ministered to your heart already as he has definitely done mine. So uh, we just pray that you're here to receive a word from the Lord because he has one for you today as we draw near, not with our lips, but with our hearts, uh, as we align ourselves with where he would have us to be this morning. Turn to Amos chapter 1. We are tracking through the minor prophets, the first four books, first four minor prophets uh, in the Old Testament canon of Scripture. We have talked in Hosea about how God has called us to return. He has called us to come back to a God who pursues us in his love, right? We being unworthy in ourselves, have been called by a worthy and holy God that we have just sang about, right? He has pursued us in the middle of our filth uh, and has loved us and pursued us through that. Uh, Hosea paints that picture for us. We've talked about Joel, that we serve a God who restores what we have done to ourselves. Right from Genesis 3, the, from the fall of man, God has promised to restore his people. And so we can respond and return to a God who restores us. These are universal truths. And while many, much of the context of the minor prophets cannot be directly applied to our situation, their sin, their apostasy versus our own, what we can determine is the character of God that bleeds through the words of these pages in God's unchanging character for us. And so today, as we look at the minor prophet Amos, as we see the message that he is called to deliver to the northern kingdom of Israel, what we will see is God is calling us to return to a God who sees. Now, I have never been accused of being a quiet person. If you know me, you know that to be true. Whether we are in this context or I am 101 in a very quiet place, I am talking loud. Uh, people usually will like, man, Alan, like, quiet down. You're so loud. To which I respond, well, it pays my bills, right? Because I don't know many soft-spoken pastors. I'm sure there's some out there. Uh, but I don't, haven't heard many of them, right? And I am certainly not one of those guys. Well, my quietness or lack thereof has bled over into my upbringing. I've never been a quiet kid, uh, right? I paid for some of my upbringing with my kids, right? Because they're not real quiet either. Uh, everything I did, I got caught for. Because I don't just talk loud, everything I do is loud. And so I had friends, man, they could get away with murder. I couldn't do a thing. The perfect combination of your dad, of being a pastor's kid, your dad being your youth pastor, so students, you see how messed, why I'm so messed up, right? And me being loud, I got away with nothing. And as a kid growing up, I thought that was all on the Lord because... My mom told me that she had a special ability that I didn't know humans had. That she had something that nobody else had. And she could see, even when she wasn't looking at me, 
She could see what I was doing. She had... Oh, yes, some of y'all raised the same way. Your mama had eyes in the back of their head. Now, what I came to determine later was I was not as efficient at cleaning up the problems that I had caused. And so she just swept in, and it didn't take Sherlock Holmes to recognize that Alan has eaten some cookies that he shouldn't have. Alan has uh, done things that he shouldn't have. Alan did not clean his room. Shocker. Or Alan shoved everything into his closet. But my mom always knew because she saw everything that I did. Can I tell you, that terrified me as a kid. Like, well, I better not do that because my mom's got eyes in the back of her head. Now, my mom saw everything growing up. We talk about Amos. We talk about a God who sees. One of the coolest names of God is El Roy. Now, not the kid from the Jetsons, all right? Railroad, uh, not that. That was my that was my attempt at the dog. That was I probably sh- ill advised. I shouldn't have done that. Um, I'll, I'll get to catch some grief at home, especially for that. Uh, Elroy, God, who is aware. We serve a God who is intimately aware of every one of us. We say things like He knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows our end from the beginning. We serve a God who sees us. And what we find in Amos is we see a God who sees everything about the situation in Israel. And so unlike Joel, we have many clues as to the dating of Amos. He gives us many, many clues. He writes prophesying to the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, during the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel and Uzziah in Judah. Now, this is why I love my church, all right? Shout out to Michael Monroe, who gave me a laser pointer that shows up on a TV. How you like that? Yeah. Wait. Oh, man. You can can see it. It is there. You can see it better right there, though. All right. So we've got the dating of Amos. Here's Amos right here. Uh, This is what we believe to be the earliest prophet that wrote directly about the context that he lived in. So directly in the time. So you got Jonah, right? Jonah is uh, writing about Assyria. He is writing about the revival that happens in Nineveh. You got Joel, right, who's writing about the day, the day of the Lord, right? So end time things, things that are to come more than likely. But Amos gives us the first insight into what the nation of Israel looked like. It uh, coincides with Uzziah's reign there in the southern kingdom with Jeroboam II in the uh, in the northern kingdom. And so what you need to know is Israel is at the height of his power, right? If Hosea was made fun of for the message that he brought, then certainly Amos was going to be made fun of 10 years before when there was no end in sight for the nation of Israel. He also dates the book that he wrote two years before the earthquake. Now, Zechariah mentions this, Zechariah, I believe, 14, mentions this great earthquake that happens. It's not uncommon in that region. Um, And archaeological evidence has put it somewhere around 760. There was a cataclysmic, uh, possibly an eight-point-something earthquake that hit in this area. So we believe it to be within a 10-year window of that, that, that Amos writes the book of Amos. So this would make him the earliest prophet to write specifically about the current affairs of Israel. Amos, we are told, 
based on his own description of himself, that he is a country boy. He's a good one. He'd get along with people in Elkmont, right? We're just good folks, right? He's just a good old country boy wearing Carhartt and Dickies, and he, we just get along with him, right? Trucker hats, the works, right? Like, that's just who he was. Now, many believe that he was poor, Many of the depictions of him you'll see is that he's impoverished. I tend to believe he wasn't. Uh, he was from Tekoa, which is a very small city south of uh, Bethlehem. So he's from Judah, prophesying in a very metropolitan, very elaborate, very ornate kingdom of Israel, right? And he has a specific message for him. It tells us that he, his cash crop was sycamore figs. But it wasn't just that. He had sheep and he had cattle as well. So this guy was a farmer in every sense of the word. He was well-versed in farming. And he came with a very specific message to the kingdom of Israel. And we see, through his words, we see the character of God revealed. And so first, we see the oppression. God sees the oppression of his people. The persecution of the Jewish people is no accident. It's also nothing new, right? That from early on in Israel's history, they were a persecuted people. Amos chapter 1 tells us about the oppression and the coming judgment of God on his enemies. Amos chapter 1, beginning in verse 2 to 3. Listen to what it says. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion. And he utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. The Lord thundering, the Lord roaring from Zion, bringing and announcing judgment on God's enemies. Would you pray with me, Father? Help us to grab a hold of your word. May it inform us, but may it do what only your word can do. May it change us. God, as we see your faithfulness, Lord, through the writing of Amos, it's in your name we pray. Amen. There's a common mathematical formula that Amos will give in his pronouncement of judgment, of God's pronouncement of judgment on these people. Uh, he says a common phrase that is for three transgressions and for four, right? So multiplying on itself, you are not just guilty of one thing, three, three and four. He's not saying there's only three things or there's only four things. He's, just, he's, he's talking about the cumulative effect of your sin. Remember, Hosea told us that sin breaks God's heart. Amos ain't got time for all that. Amos says it breaks God's law. Sin breaks God's law, and because you stand guilty of God's law, there is judgment coming your way, big boy. And so he begins to list all of the nations that are considered enemies of Israel. And if you don't have a map here, you're going to miss what he's actually doing. He's using geography to his advantage. The first one that he brings up, and you can write these uh, down, you can read it in Amos chapter 1. But Amos chapter 1, verse 3, he talks about the city of Damascus. This is the capital city in the Assyrian Empire. And because of their oppression of God's people, he tells them, 
Hey, Damascus, rest in peace. You're out. You're gone, right? He says, because of the oppression of God's people, you are removed. You are to be removed. Amos chapter 6, 1 verse 6, we see Gaza, which is in the Philistine state. Remember the Philistines? Completely opposed to everything God did. Remember Goliath was a Philistine, right? And so he speaks to Gaza and he says, you know what? There's judgment for three and for four. You are out. You're gone. Reduced to rubble. Amos chapter 1, verse 9. He speaks of Tyre, which was the prominent city in the nation of Phoenicia, a great trade power that had great prominence in the area. Guess what he had to say about them? Don't use as big a piece of tape, is what he said. No. What'd he say? Bye, Felicia. That's what he said. You're gone. You're out of here. Right? Amos chapter 1, verse 11. He talks. These are nations, by the way, that had no tie to Israel. They were just random nations. They were surrounding but random nations. Then he talks to a bunch of the nations that have blood ties to Israel. He talks to Edom. Edom was the arch rival of Israel. Remember, Edom was descended from Esau, the one who had the birthright and gave it up for soup. Must have been some darn good soup, right? Gave it up. They've had an axe to grind ever since. So he says to the nation of Edom, sayonara, sucker. You're out. You're gone. Rest in peace. He pronounces doom. And one by one, he systematically begins to destroy all of the enemies of the nation of Israel. We find in Amos chapter 13, he speaks to the country of Ammon. Now, these were people that were direct descendants from Gilat. And his youngest daughter, yep, you heard me right, yuck, right? Lot and his younger daughter, youngest daughter had children illegitimately. They became the nation of Ammon, of, of Ammon the kingdom of Ammon. God says, because of your oppression of God's people, you are out of here. And then finally he comes to Moab. Moab, who were the descendants of Lot, so cousins of the Jews, right? And his oldest daughter, Yuck, the kingdom of Moab. Because of all of your oppression, because of your injustice, you are gone. Do you see what's happening here? Literally every nation that is surrounding Israel is being judged. And then, then he gets to the pinnacle of the sermon. Where Israelites, where the Israel, nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, would be rejoicing on high. Because listen to what he says about the southern kingdom. Amos chapter 2, verse 4 through 5. Thus says the Lord... For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment 
because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. So the people that the kingdom of Israel would have been most jealous of, the kingdom that had Jerusalem, Mount Zion, where God chose to allow his presence to dwell. They had Bethlehem, where the Messiah would come from. And they had the Davidic dynasty. They had the line. Every king of Israel was not a direct descendant of David. If the law was correct, if God's promises were correct, the Messiah would come to, from Judah. And so for them to hear that Judah is destroyed would have been the most overwhelmingly popular message that the nation of Israel had ever heard. At this point, Amos is the most popular preacher in Israelite history. Come and let's find out what nation gets the boot today, kids. Let's go. Let's, let's, let's watch and let's see God's justice. Finally, we get to see God's justice. The nation of Israel would have celebrated God's judgment on these people. That all of these countries would be laid to waste literally everywhere the, every nation that touched Israel had oppressed them, had persecuted them, and they were getting what was coming to them. Now, we know that Jerusalem was destroyed. We know that Judah was led into captivity. These things did happen. They happened 150 years later because of the leadership of eight good kings, not perfect kings, but good kings that staved off the disaster in Judah. But what the Israelite people thought, what the kingdom of Israel thought, is that God was lifting Israel above every other nation. They were, because of his condemnation of all of these nations, they were being selected. They were being handpicked. They were being set apart for good things. And they relished the disaster that came upon their enemies. I want you to know that it's human nature to seek justice. It's human nature. When we see wrongs and atrocities committed... It's human nature to desire to see them get got. To see somebody that has hurt to be hurt in return. That's human nature, right? Somebody that has hurt you. Somebody that has done harm to you in a room this size. There is untold Numbers of betrayals, of people being taken advantage of, and people that have experienced great atrocities. And it is human nature to seek justice and vengeance from those people. And the people of Israel, in their human nature, were relishing the word that they were hearing from the prophet Amos. 
It's human nature to seek justice. We want to see people get what they have coming to them. It's just how we are, right? Karma. What goes around comes around. We choose to blend the ideals of the world with the ideals of our Christianity, right? And so, yeah, it's okay, right? It's okay to see people get judged for the wrong that they've done. And we will do what we can to make sure that justice comes to them. It's the human nature to seek justice. But it's the spiritual nature that allows us to seek God's rest. Let me explain. We like to see people that have hurt us get hurt in our nature. We like to see people that have done wrong be punished for their sins and their atrocities. We view them as our enemies. And so when we see them defeated, we rejoice. Because in some way that has lifted us and our spirits up. But can I suggest to you a better way? Because the reality is, because God is who he is, we don't have to seek justice. Justice is coming. God is faithful. God will not allow wickedness to go unpunished. We don't have to seek bad and ill toward others because God is faithful and he will not be mocked. We as believers should not seek the demise of other people of our enemies, of our other political views from us, of, our, of, of other ideologies than us, of other religions than us. We should not seek their demise because justice is coming. But because of who I am, I very much should seek God's justification. Because that's not guaranteed to me. God's justice is guaranteed. His mercy must be received by grace through faith. We seek His grace. It's easy for us to rejoice when evil is punished. God has never called his people to do that. God has called his people to trust him to dispense justice because of who he is. And he has given us, especially as the church, 2 Corinthians 5, very clear. You have been given one ministry, church. Your ministry is not pointing out the problems in everyone else. Your ministry is not skepticism to someone else's Holy Spirit. Your job is not to point out everyone else's flaws. Your ministry is one word, reconciliation. We are Christ's 
ambassadors. He has given us power from on high, being his sons and daughters. We have been given the power of of attorney of heaven, not to preach condemnation, but to preach reconciliation. And it says, he goes on, Paul, as if God is making his appeal through us be reconciled to God. Because you know why? You and me, we don't need to be in the business of seeking God's justice. Because that doesn't end well for us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we make our business about seeking justice of our enemies, we are revealing the nature of our heart. We reveal the fact that we are seeking not to see the world restored, to see the lost one, to see the wretch saved, but we are responding in our own humanity, in our own human sinful flesh. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. In your notes, seeing others through the lens of our own forgiveness should cause me to glory in God's grace, to celebrate and throw a stinking hoot nanny about God's grace rather than to joy in God's judgment. So do you find glory in God's grace? Are you just ready for everybody to get what's coming to them? Because here's the problem. When we have that mentality, we miss who came for us. We miss what God did. We miss the change that he has brought about in our hearts. Number two, Israel thought they were being lifted out from all other nations. They were special. But it wasn't so much of a podium as much as it was a bullseye. The nation of Israel, God in one chapter was dealing with all the nations around Israel. But from Amos 6, 2 to Amos 6, specifically, do you know who God views the sin of? God sees the sin of Israel. God sees... He's aware. He is very well acquainted with the sins of his people. He knows that none of us are, are, all of us are deserving of God's justice. And none of us are worthy of his grace. Amos 2, 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel. Time out, Amos. You had us going with the seven, right? The the seven before, that was awesome. I tell you what, seven looks better on a sermon outline than eight, all right? So let's leave it at seven. If I preached a seven-point message, y'all would have a heart attack, by the way. If I said point one of seven, y'all would absolutely fall out, right? But Amos goes to point eight. 
For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go in to the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside bed, beside, beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. He speaks specifically of four areas where Israel is just as guilty of every other atrocity because harm against God's people is harm against God himself. And for God's people... To bear his name and to be in sin is not harm just to God's people. It's harm to God himself. And so he begins to address it. He talks about injustice. In this time, because of their extravagance, they would sell the righteous into servitude. And, and literally brothers that were, that were of the same household, of the same tribe, would be sold into servitude for one another. It was prohibited by the law in Deuteronomy, by Moses' words in Deuteronomy, but yet they did it. right? They would manipulate. They had un, uh, unequal scales. Unbalanced scales that were meant to take advantage of the poor. And so the rich could get richer and the poor would get poorer. And they would, as it says there, they would trample the head of the poor. Right? They would crush them in their attempt to live the most extravagant lives that they possibly could. It speaks of sexual sin. Not just harlotry in the spiritual sense, but they were sexually abased people physically. Right? That they were worshiping other gods. They were going in to the same woman. They were, they were sinning. They were profaning the name of God. It speaks of their extravagance. Their corruption. The level of their corruption had perpetuated their, cush, their cushy lifestyle. Right? They had to maintain that and so they had to trample on more and more and more people. Can you imagine a country boy from Tekoa coming up into a, the capital city of Samaria or going to Bethel and saying all of these things, all of these luxuries of life are sin. They are pointing to the sin in your life. But ultimately, their sin was that they were profaning the name of God. It wasn't just doing harm to themselves. It was doing harm to all the nations who looked at Israel bearing God's name. And they looked no different than anyone else. Jeroboam II had created a new breed of priests. Most of the Levites left and he created new priests that weren't loyal to God, but they were loyal to him and they would push his agenda. Jeroboam wasn't real appreciative of all of the people in Israel emptying out on holy days to go to Jerusalem. So what he decided to do is we'll make it more convenient. We'll keep that tourism in state. We're going to have Bethel and we'll have Dan, the, northern, the southernmost and the northernmost cities. We will deem them holy cities in places where they'll come to worship. He erected a uh, golden calf in both of the cities so that they could come and worship. Does that sound familiar? Not a good idea. Didn't work out the first time? Guess what? Not going to work out this time. 
right? Golden calves on either side of Israel so they could come worship, they could make their sacrifices with their corrupt priests, and he created this whole religious system, not completely ignoring the things that God had told him to do, but just putting his own spin on it. Jeroboam II is referenced in 2 Kings as the king who led Israel to sin. Can I tell you that is a that is a very serious thought for anyone in leadership. God, may it never be said of me that I was a pastor that led the church to sin. But Jeroboam led Israel to sin. Bethel, their primary place of worship in the south, because people were used to migrating south, they just came south. Dan, not as much. Uh, Bethel is mentioned almost in equal breath in the Old Testament as Jerusalem. In fact, other than Jerusalem, it's mentioned more than any other town in Israel. In Israel or Judah. It's Bethel. Guess how many times it's referenced in the New Testament? None. Literally, the town, the place of their worship was laid to such devastation that it literally never came to prominence ever again. So much so, it never even was brought up in conversation as, hey, where are you? Where are you at? Oh, well, we're traveling through Bethel. It never even came up in the New Testament. They were utterly destroyed. But here's the problem. The people of Israel thought they were doing right. They thought, yeah, okay, there's some things that are shady that we're doing. We, we get that. But man, I mean, we are still, by and large, we are abiding by the laws that we should be abiding by, right? Listen to Amos chapter 5. This is their mindset. Amos 5 verse 21. I hate I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Who, who deemed that the feast and the assemblies should happen? God did. That was law. They were doing law things. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And your peace offerings of your fattened animal, I will not look upon them. Well, who called them to make offerings? God did. The law did. They were doing religious things. How about this? I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. Who called the nation of Israel to sing songs? God did. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream in your notes in busying their hands with religion they had missed the heart of repentance the people of Israel came to church man the northern kingdom came to church weekly they were here their hind ends were in the pews they might have even come to small group. Hey, they could have handed out a bulletin on Sunday morning. We might have looked at them and gone, well, they pretty much have it all together. These are, these are mature people. Look at all the things that they're doing that are right. They had become very busy in God things. But they're, in their hearts, they had missed. 
can I tell you, I desire for Lindsay Lane North not to be known for our worship, for our preaching, for our groups, for our children's strategies, for our student ministry, for our women's or our men's ministry. Because all of those things can be done in human power. What matters to God today is what has mattered to God forever. We are to return to a God who sees. And doesn't just see what man sees, but God looks at the heart, folks. And so may we not be people that are caught up and because I'm just coming to church every Sunday that I've checked off my religious duty. Church is not an event on our calendar. Church is who we are. We are the called out ones. We are the ones that are called by a holy God into relationship with him. And that relationship with him works itself out to difference in this world. May we not be a church that's known for our activity known as a church that has been with Jesus. Because we can busy our hands with a lot of things and miss the heart of the Father. Religion is no substitute for relationship. Now, religion isn't a bad thing. Don't mix it. But religion doesn't get us to relationship. It's relationship that bears religion. And so we serve based on what God has done for us and out of the gratitude and the love in our heart. Church, it's not enough just to be here. It's not enough for the pastor to know your name. It's not enough to be plugged in. Is your heart in this? When you came today, were you coming because it was tradition? Or were you coming to be transformed by the grace of God to meet with him and to meet his presence in others? Now, you carry God's presence with you wherever you go. But are you experiencing God's presence in others today? Is that why you came? Because I believe if you did, I believe an invitation looks different. I believe an invitation looks like us doing heart surgery on ourselves or asking God to reveal the sinfulness of our heart. In the time of response, is your concern more what you're doing afterwards? Or if Will's going to sing that second or third stanza? Or is it about getting your heart right with God? Because God sees. And there's a certain level of response that he expects of his people. By grace through faith. May we not be guilty of the sin of Israel. Busying our hands with religion and missing the heart of repentance. Thirdly and finally, God sees the future of his people. You know what's great? God doesn't leave us in our filth. Like any good parent who sees that their kid has made an 
incredible mess as only children seem to be able to do, right? And I've learned the older they get, just the larger the scope of the mess, right? The more lives that become affected by the scope of the mess, right? It starts as puddles and then it transforms into A-bombs in relationships and families, right? But just like any good parent would rescue their children, God offers rescue from our own ruin. We did it to ourselves, but God offers restoration. He doesn't leave God's people. Yeah, this is a bullseye. Israel is a bullseye of God's judgment for six chapters. He's a bullseye of God's judgment, but God doesn't leave them there. Listen to Amos 9. Turn to Amos 9. God sees the future of his people. Amos 9, verse 11. In that day, what day? The day of the Lord. I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches. He talked about the nation being destroyed, holes being in the walls that people could crawl in and out of. They would be destroyed. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. I will rebuild Israel, maybe as a near fulfillment, right, that they would be restored back to the land. But they're obviously not rebuilt at that point. Sure, Nehemiah would oversee a building, but they're not restored to prominence. They're still a vassal state of foreign powers, right? Even when Jesus arrives. And then the resurrection, God sets up a spiritual reign, a spiritual kingdom, which certainly is in view here, but it's probably even not it entirely, right? Because there's in time ramifications to what Amos is saying as well. But God will restore The tent of David, the tabernacle of David, the booth of David, whatever your translation says, it is fallen, but it will be brought back. For unto you is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. But you know what? That message ain't just for the Jews. Look at verse 12. That they may possess... The remnant of Edom, the arch enemies of Israel. May they possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. God's plan wasn't just to restore Israel. God's plan was for the blessings of David and the Davidic covenant and the restoration that he promised to be to every tribe, tongue, and nation. If it was good for Edom, it'd be good for anybody else. If it was good for the nation that opposed Israel at every pass, it was good for every other nation. Y'all, that's us. In your notes, God's rescue plan is not just for a people. It's for all people. So the same restoration that Israel gets, we too can be restored. Not because we deserve it, not because we are not deserving of God's justice, but because God is gracious and responds in love, in compassion, in goodness and grace instead of death and destruction. Instead of writing us off as abased, as wretched, he has invited us in as family. And so today, 
today, today, this moment, you can respond to the invitation of God. You can enter into his family, his circle of love. You can enter even today. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Didn't know all that was in there, did you? Man, the book of Amos is a book of how God sees us. He doesn't see the social media version of yourself. He doesn't see the highlights and just the stuff that you want him to see. He sees it all. He sees it all and he recognizes that because of who you are, you are deserving of his justice, which means you are deserving of life forever separated from his love. He's holy and he's perfect. But he is also good and he is gracious. And he sees past your failures, not to what you could be, but who he is. And today, you can have new life with him. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please, please don't allow these moments to slip by without coming and finding me here at the front. I'd love to talk to you about how you can know that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He loves you despite of you. He loves you. Would you respond to that? And maybe you're here. Maybe, like Israel, you've allowed your heart to get clouded with a lot of things. And man, God is not, Jesus is not on the throne of your life right now. Maybe you are living to gratify yourself in your own flesh. Maybe you need to come and do business here at the altar. Hey, maybe like how Israel should have responded in, cha- in the first chapter, maybe instead of being excited about all the condemnation of everybody that's, that's done wrong to you, maybe you need to come and intercede right now for you know people that have hurt you, people that have betrayed you, people that have caused a root of bitterness. Maybe you need to forgive them in view of the forgiveness that you have received from God. Maybe you need to intercede for their salvation today. I don't know what this invitation response looks like to you. But I pray that you would respond to a God who sees. Father, have your will and way in this place. We love you and we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your power in our lives. I pray for one that needs to know you as Lord and Savior. I pray for one that needs to do business here at this altar. One that may need to join arms with us as new members of Lindsay Lane North. Whatever the case may be, I pray that we would respond to you as you lead us today. Have your way in our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. And amen. Would you stand to your feet? As we sing in this time of response, would you come? If the Holy Spirit is moving in your heart, would you come? Would you respond to Him today in His love?